this is the Stand Alone podcast. Someone said to me right at the very start of this estrangement when it acutely hurt me, the one thing that you can't change there is that you'll always be his mother. And that's the fact. And that doesn't go away. The longer you're estranged from someone, the wider the gap becomes. And you just get on with your daily life, don't you? You have to. It's a protective mechanism. My name's Jay, and I'm producing this podcast series for Standalone UK, supporting estranged adults in everyday life. To be honest with you, if my son turned up today, if he was in trouble, I'd welcome him with open arms, of course. But if he turned up and wanted to start talking, of course, I'd be delighted. But I don't know what common ground I'd have with him now anymore. And that frightens me even more because the dynamic of the whole relationship will have changed. I'm not sure what we'd talk about now. Because, as I say, the longer it goes on, the wider the gap. And that concerns me as well. Across these episodes, 10 participants who have very kindly offered to share their experiences of family estrangement. Having had cancer and having had a pretty rough two years (laughs) with people dropping down dead. (laughs) Whereas I was eaten up with it, really upset, felt like I'd lost a son, but he was still living, walking and breathing. I now feel sorry for him. No two experiences of estrangement are the same, but hopefully throughout this podcast series, you'll hear useful ideas to take away, whether they're similar journeys or contrasting opinions. All mothers blame themselves. I've examined my conscience that I'd do the same thing again, but in the early stages, you, you, you blame yourself. I mean, you're such a mess. You just think, oh, you know, everything I've done is wrong and, you know, it must be because of this or that. I know that my son probably is hurting over this and that is probably my overriding concern now. I might have a reconnection, but I don't know that I will. But I suppose it's like anything. You don't ever give up hope, do you? Hello. How was the gym, Sarah? Very hard this morning. (laughs) Very hard. I've been going for about eight weeks, twice a week to try and lose some weight. I'm in the gym with a load of young girls who are just fabulous at it. But I'm getting better. So thank you. I'm a gym goer myself, but really not as much as I as I should be going. No, it's a thing to do now, isn't it? I mean, five years ago, it was just the diehards, but now everyone goes. I'm 56 and it was really to lose a little bit of weight. And also because I can't move as well as I used to, mm. you know, just to sort of like keep a bit of suppleness, really. But I've got up this morning and gone, so I'm very good. I'm pleased that you're finding it a rewarding experience, though. That's awesome. Today, like every episode to follow until the end of the podcast season, we're hearing mostly from one person throughout as they share their journey. But there will be extracts from other experiences mixed in. So, like Grace, who we met back in the third episode, Sarah is estranged from her child, her eldest son. Hi, my name's Sarah, and I'm a mother of two boys. I'm a nurse by background. And nowadays I'm a university lecturer and I work full time. Oh, really? What do you teach at uni? Non-medical prescribing, which is a huge demand. Yes, yes. So all the all the healthcare pr- uh, practitioners and professionals wanting to become prescribers nowadays. 
I look up course. to people like you because I'm a, I'm an academic tutor myself, but um, well, an academic tutor, so very much bottom rung at your university. All right, so you're a like-minded person. <laughs> you understand where I'm coming from. <laughs> Just not from a nursing perspective, which I mean, we hear so often that it's underfunded these days. Well, it is, which is why all these um, healthcare professionals and it's paramedics, podiatrists, dietitians, they're all wanting to become prescribers. And part of that is to plug the gap, really. But it's a very hard, stressful course because they're only in uni one day a week and they're working the rest of the time. And it's new knowledge they're learning and it's hard. So but it's rewarding teaching them. So and I work with a really good team. So I'm very lucky. And how long have you been teaching at the uni? I left nursing after 30 years. I retired when I was 55 and thought I'm not quite ready to hang up my hat yet. So I thought, I know, I'll go into teaching because I wanted to make a difference. So I've been teaching for 18 months. We're coming up for two years now. I started just before I was 55, one day a week teaching. So, but now I'm full time and yeah, I love it. So yeah, it can be challenging at times and the marking is a nightmare as you can imagine <laughs> yes absolutely there's certain times yeah. of year where you just get a bit bogged down yeah peaks and troughs so um but yeah no I like it you know if you just to stand and have the class with you and to know that you might be making a difference is awesome I think I'll see how I go <laughs> if it gets harder then I'll have to think again so but at the moment yeah that's what I'm doing so and I enjoy it does that connect with how you are as a person in your everyday life? Uh, what, you mean being a nurse? Aye. I guess you've got to have certain qualities to be a nurse. I mean, I could talk about this for hours. Nowadays, people want compassionate nurses, but how do you interview for compassion in an interview? <laughs> you can't, can you? But I've also, I had cancer myself. Ooh, how many years ago now? Six years ago. So I've been a patient myself as well. I've been on the other side. So, yeah, they do a fabulous job. Goodness. Are you happy to go more into that time of your life when you were living with cancer? Well, yeah, I, when I was 50, I had a routine mammogram and they picked up breast cancer, which I didn't know I had. And that was in the June, I think. No, it was my, just before my birthday. Yeah, July. And I had chemotherapy beforehand, which was okay. wasn't too bad. People say it's terrible, but it affects everyone differently. I had a couple of periods where they ramped it up where it was a little bit difficult and then I had to have a mastectomy that was fine that was four days before Christmas <laughs> and that was fine dealt with it had a lot of support from the family and then in 2016 I had reconstructive surgery so I had a very delayed reconstructive surgery five hours on the operating table the night actually before I went down for the surgery my oldest son who I'm estranged from was arguing with me by text so which was probably the worst part of it but I'm lucky to be alive I'm here I'm happy you know thank god for the NHS they did a brilliant job you've got to live each day as it comes because you just don't know that's a good positive mindset to have absolutely yeah and it does change your perception you know you, when you hear people grumbling and that and you think you're lucky <laughs> you know I'm nothing special compared to some of those kids who've lost their mums at even younger ages and I'm still here a lot of cancers that can be caught really early nowadays and treated and I'm a case in point but I suppose when you've had cancer you're always thinking is it going to come back and to begin with, that was my biggest fear. But I've had to let that go because you can just get eaten up by that. It changed my 
viewpoint on a lot of things. You were saying that at the time of going through the cancer treatment, that you were having an argument with your now estranged son. We had been estranged from Boxing Day 2015, which is when the flashpoint happened. He'd been difficult anyway, always jealous of his younger brother. And there was an episode on Boxing Day and it was unacceptable. And I asked him to leave. I mean, I gave him the chance to apologise first and he didn't. And I asked him to leave. And that was four years ago. I have seen him since at family occasions, but not to talk to. I think I actually texted him before I went down for the operation because I was worried. He did answer, but it just ended up in a war over the text, really. It wasn't very productive or constructive. So that was my mistake, really. I've learned from that. I don't contact him anymore at all. There's no point. But at the time, it was early days. And I suppose when you're going down for a five-hour operation and you, you don't know, you want to say goodbye just in case or, or, or have that communication. But it backfired. How old is he at this point, sorry? Well, when I asked him to leave, he was 23. He was 24 in the March and it was Boxing Day, which was an unfortunate day in the evening. He's 27 now. So, yeah, so 23, yeah. But when I had my reconstructive surgery, that was a year later, so he'd been 24, yeah. Hmm. So he's not a child, child. (laughs) No, but I suppose people say that no matter how old people are, you can still consider them to be like a child, if that makes sense. Well, he certainly needs to grow up, yeah. Um, (laughs) A lot of his problem is based on jealousy and immaturity, I would suspect. But, you know, of course, he's my child. And someone said to me right at the very start of this estrangement, when it acutely hurt me, the one thing that you can't change there is that you'll always be his mother. And that's a fact. And that doesn't go away. I don't think about him too much nowadays, which is another thing that worries me, I suppose, the longer you're estranged from someone, the wider the gap becomes and you just get on with your daily life, don't you? You have to. It's a protective mechanism. But yeah, at the time, just going down for that operation, I thought I need to make contact. And he did actually respond, but it wasn't pleasant. So probably with hindsight, I wish I hadn't, but I did. We're all human, aren't we? Yes, indeed. You said that response led to an argument with him over text. Mm. Mm. I can't remember the detail of it. It was mudslinging, really. I suppose he was still very angry about what had happened and didn't understand. The point is, in all this estrangement in the early stages, I tried to reach out to him. It's almost cowardness on his part. He's never wanted to talk about it. He's angry, but he doesn't want to talk about it. But, you know, how can you ever resolve anything if you don't talk to someone? You have to listen to everyone's point of view, don't you? And he's just not wanted to engage at all. I can understand he was angry to begin with, but even now, and I think now it's probably pride, but I can't even remember what the detail of it was. It was probably like you throwing me out and I probably said, you know, I did it for a reason, dear, and I did give you the chance to apologise and I've tried to speak to you since. And, you know, it was just sort of stuff like that, really. So it wasn't very useful. I think the offshot of it was he said... He said something like, get off the phone, you're a waste of oxygen, which was hurtful. So the thing is, and, you know, a mother knows her son. She thinks she does. I know that probably he was hurting as well. And it was just his way of dealing with it. And probably a bit confused and not sure how to handle it, probably. I posed this thought 
Sarah's situation and the conversations she had with her son via phone when she was undergoing reconstructive surgery to Becca Bland, who is the standalone UK charity's founder and CEO. Well, again, it's that sense of yearning, isn't it? The sense of yearning for a response that you feel is appropriate or loving or or caring from somebody who isn't giving you those responses. And I think, again, it's a bit in a similar way when you're ill. It's a bit like Christmas in that this is a time where you really need people and that family becomes very important. And people in our caring services ask about family all the time. They assume family will be there. It can be very alienating and very difficult if family are not there and they're not playing that role. But more than anything, you feel very vulnerable when you're ill. And for you, you might really need somebody to kind of step in and say, it doesn't matter about this that's gone on between us. You're ill and I want to be there for you. But again, it can be a bit like a sticking plaster because then you are coming in and just kind of saying that everything is okay. When actually there's some really deep things that need to happen emotionally for your relationship to be the supportive, loving and caring relationship that it needs to be. And that's movement from both sides in many ways. And it's so challenging when you're ill. It's so, so challenging because of all times, you just want that time to be the time where people can put those things aside and be there for you. But it's very rarely that simple. You'll hear Becca's voice across the podcast series and the rest of this episode. So back to Sarah and her estrangement from her eldest son. How would you describe him as a person? Well, I used to live in a village and the best thing I did was move out of that village, to tell you the truth. I mean, every story is complicated. I've been married twice, been in two abusive marriages and, you know, that wouldn't have helped. And my mother, who's been dead and gone two years tomorrow, was a lovely mother, but she sided with my grandson and she caused a little bit of upset there. I met someone else and I moved away from the village. And I would say that the village is predominantly misogynistic. It's very much propping up the bar, two pubs, very male orientated. And unfortunately, my son still lives in that village. The general opinion I had about my son growing up was, what a lovely boy he is. He's a credit to you. I mean, home's your sanctuary. It's supposed to be. And you can have those rows at home with your family. Everyone does. But if he could behave out in public and be well thought of, then I've done a good job. We used to get on very well. We used to laugh. We used to laugh quite a lot. My son used to be incredibly generous. He was always very generous, you know, at Mother's Day and that. He'd always give me great big presents. It wasn't about the materialistic things. It was about the fact, you know, that it was kind of him to do that. I mean, he bought me a Hoover one year and a fridge another year. You know, he was quite good and used to come up and give you big bear hugs and that. As I say, he, you know, on the face of it, he was a nice, nice boy. He was very soft and not necessarily always the brightest and would say something and, and be quite indignant and thought that he was right. And people would sort of say to him, no, actually, you're wrong. And once he realised, he'd laugh about it. So he was, you know, he was quite a nice boy, quite arrogant, though, quite arrogant. And that's probably his downfall. And very jealous of his younger brother, although he had no reason to be. I think sibling rivalry exists in a lot of families, but not to the extent that one family member will do something and end up being estranged and not try to make amends because of it. 
but if he met the right girl, he'd be a really great father because he's soft, really. But I don't know. I haven't really spoken to him for four years. My hope is that he's growing up and that one day he may meet the right girl and the right girl might say, go and talk to your mum. But until that happens, I don't know. So you are potentially hoping that that he does get back in contact then? Well, my partner now says, you know, who's very sensible, says there's a chance he may never, Sarah. And I I said, I know that. (laughs) I lost my mother two years ago tomorrow. But my oldest son, who I'm estranged from, found her dead on the sofa. And no one was expecting it. And then I've lost my sister this year from motor neurone disease. And no one was expecting it. So I've been to two funerals where my son's been and he's ignored me at both funerals. One was for my mother, which was his grandmother, and one was for my sister. And so if that isn't enough to make him wake up, I'm not sure what is. The thing is, I've done a lot of, I've had counselling over this and my counsellor at the time said, crikey, Sarah, I'm surprised I didn't see you years ago. You've done so much work on yourself. You've had quite a colourful life and you've managed to sort a lot of it yourself she helped enormously and I've also done a lot of reading and I also found standalone and I thought I have to just let him come to me every time I reach out to him I'm just going to upset myself because he's a going to ignore me or b if he does reply it's going to be hurtful so I have to just let him be and let him come to me if he's going to there's a possibility he might not but I have to look after the people who do need me and who do love me and I have to look after me as well So that's what I do now. But he knows our address. He knows where we live. I hope he knows that if he was in trouble, we're here for him. But I can't do any more than that. My mother said, actually, before she died, I don't believe that he would be able to have a child and not show you his own child. And I actually believe that as well, because, as I say, he was soft. So I suppose I'm hoping, but if I don't, I don't. And at the moment having been through two funerals and an operation for reconstructive surgery and still not seeing him, there's a possibility I might not. He's very stubborn as well. Hmm. Thank you for going through all that. My goodness, the last couple of years, Sarah. (laughs) (laughs) I know, and I've changed jobs, but I'm not one of those people that would just sit back and feel sorry for myself. Someone said to me years ago, self-pity is a negative emotion. Where does it get you? It doesn't get you anywhere, does it? Let's be honest. I mean, we all feel sorry for ourselves to some extent occasionally, but where does it actually get you? It doesn't get you anywhere. I deal in facts. This is the fact. I mean, I say that and I sound probably quite um, rational and and together. I went to um, a wedding in France a couple of years ago and I was totally distraught that my son wasn't there and the rest of the family were there and they were saying, yes, he should be here. It goes against the natural order of things. You bring your kids up, you know, you wrap them up in a towel and cover them in talcum powder when they're babies and you don't think they're never going to talk to you again. It goes against the natural order. But I just have to think, actually, I wasn't that bad a mum. I've got friends who've done much worse things and been much worse mothers than I was. And their kids talk to them. So I think I just have to look after me and look after my other son and my partner and my students and my other family members and be the best person I can be. That's all I can do. The rest of it's out of my control. And I think for those mothers going through the acute stage where it really hurts, it's almost like someone's taken your heart out and twisted it around and wrung it out. I understand that. And it killed me for probably about a year 
you know, I couldn't talk to anyone without bursting into tears over it. But I'm through that now because there's nothing I can do about it. Time helps you to get it into perspective. And if you know there's nothing you can do about it, then you just have to look after yourself because otherwise you'd just go under, wouldn't you? To begin with, it was like a bereavement where no one had died. It's like losing a son, but actually they haven't died. In the early stages, it's a horrific thing to go through. It really is. It's, it's, it is really, no one said that to me. I just thought it myself. It's like I've lost a child, but actually he's still, he's not dead. Uh, it was like a bereavement. You go through all the motions of a bereavement, yet they're not dead. And that's horrible. That's horrible. I'm four years on. I'm, my mother's been dead two years. The first year she died, I went through all the normal bereavement processes, upset. You know, she was a good mother for all that. And, and now I can talk about her without bursting into tears because it's a natural process. They say two years for a bereavement. And my son's been gone for four years. So I can talk about him now. But the first two years, especially the first year, is horrible. And even worse, because I knew he wasn't dead. And you can't reach out to your own son. It's not obligatory that they talk to you or are part of your life. And that's true. You know, it's not, even though I'll always biologically be his mum, I don't have the automatic right, especially now he's a grown-up. But obviously you hope that you have a good relationship with your grown-up child, and, and I haven't. But, um, yeah, so that first year, if anyone's going through that, there is light at the end of the tunnel, but it's 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 hard. When I've been putting this podcast series together, I've been attempting to find elements of common ground between different people's experiences. Now, of course, everyone's journeys are different, but there were certainly some similar thoughts that ran between them. Grace, who we met in episode three, also talked about this idea of estrangement being like a bereavement. People describe estrangement as a death. I would never wish the death of a child or a grandchild on anybody. My description of it is a living death. It's as though they've died, but they haven't. They're out there, but you can't reach them. And so you can't grieve and you can't move on. It was a horrendous wrench. And I guess really I completely fell apart. And David, who we'll meet in a later episode, who for a time was estranged from all three of his children and now remains estranged from his son. As a parent, you know, with help, you can get to the point where you can say to yourself, OK, I know that I would be happier if my children were in my life, but I can be happy without my children in my life as well. The presence or not of your children in your life must not become a deciding factor about your happiness. When you get to that stage, when you've finished grieving and you start to move beyond the grieving, you start to, to step back. The situation becomes less uh, dominant in your life. It becomes less the focus of your existence. You begin to move on. It sounds terribly hard, terribly brutal, but estrangement is a brutal situation. I haven't closed the door at all, uh, and I never would. You never get over it. You never, ever heal. 
I think like death, you probably learn to live with it. And I guess I'm learning to live with it. Although the difference between death and estrangement, I think, is that they are out there. They are there. They are living. They're not dead. And you can't move on. It's been really the most horrendous thing imaginable. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. Another commonality across some of the standalone podcast episodes is the voice of Jonathan Stockwell, who Becca and I met in Edinburgh to talk about some of the themes that were raised. But from his experience in facilitating one of standalone's support groups in Edinburgh, he had a different reaction to this idea of estrangement being like a bereavement. I've found this in the interviews, that a lot of people have equated or thought about this feeling of estrangement like a bereavement or like a loss. Is that something that comes up often in, in your support groups? Hmm. No, it's not actually. No, that was said to me by somebody who, as far as I know, doesn't have an experience of estrangement. Certainly people talk about loss, but I've never heard people talk compare it really with a bereavement. It didn't seem to match for me. I can talk about it freely now without getting upset because I think it is what it is. What can I do about it? Nothing. Obviously, I wish it wasn't that way, but it is. So I just have to get on with it. I mean, I'm lucky. I, I go to work full time. I work with young people. I go to the gym. I've got quite a few friends and you know, I've got a really good partner. We go on holiday. So I'm quite lucky in my life. I mean, for years I was financially struggling in between husbands and things. But, you know, I, I've got a bit of money now and I'd like to be able to. I mean, my youngest son, you know, I helped him with having his car service this year. I said, OK, I'm paying for it because I'd rather know that it's done when you're on, you know, going to work up and down the motorway. And yes, you should have saved the money, but I'm doing it. And I'd like to be able to help my oldest son like that as well, but I can't. So, And it's not all financial, I know, but I'd like to be able to say, you know, you okay, son? Can I help you? And I can't. It is what it is, though. My angle for doing this is to help other mums, because I think this is something that is becoming more common. Years ago, I was one of four kids. I mean, my mother could have driven me mad at times. And we probably had stand-up fights and all the rest of it. But I wouldn't have dreamt of never speaking to her. And I just don't know if this is to do with the way we're living nowadays. I don't know. But I think there's more of it than people realise. If I can help, you know, if there's a mother that's listening to this who's just going through the early stages of this, it's always going to hurt a bit. But I've gone through the what you could call the acute stage, the early stages, the shock, the disbelief, you know, how can this be happening to me? So my message to those mums that are going through that is to look after yourself and love the people that do need you. And I may be wrong in this, but I have read that, they have to make the contact. You can't reach out to them. But that might be wrong. I'm not sure if that's correct advice, but I've read that in a few places. And that's the philosophy I'm taking. And it certainly is the case in my case, because if I've reached out to my son, he's ignored me. So I just think you just set yourself up for her. I mean, his birthday will come. And I think, should I text him happy birthday or send him a birthday card? I suppose I could. It'd make me feel better. But I won't get any response from it. So if I'm doing it for a response, you won't get that response. So I just let it be now. And to those mums, as I say, you know, to look after themselves. You said that one of the best things that you ever did was move out of the village where you grew up that you said was really misogynistic. Oh, totally. Well, my ex-husband lived there. 
I had been married to this man who is the life and soul of one of the pubs, stupidly, because I'd moved into the village, didn't know him. Everyone else knew him, but I didn't. And, you know, he was Prince Charming. Life and soul in the pub, actually very funny. And even I would put my hand on my heart now and say, you know, he could really make you laugh. But there was a dark side to him, of course, because he wasn't father material. I had a son with him, who's my other son, wasn't responsible, never will be. But when we split up, he told everyone I was mad, which is what happens quite often. So there was all that baggage. And then he moved away, that ex-husband, and then he came back. He moved back to the village. So he moved back. And I don't think he was telling everyone I was mad, but he was back in the village, which was a bit uncomfortable. And then my son was drinking in the two pubs and he wasn't talking to me. And I thought, you know, actually, I'm going to get complex if I stay here. (laughs) It wasn't the reason we moved. We moved because I met someone else and we needed to be nearer other jobs and a station and we moved to a better area. In hindsight, it's the best thing I did. And I know you might say that's running away, and it's not. But if you're driving out the road and you see your son sort of standing outside a pub smoking and ignoring you, it's not very nice. It was like a constant reminder. So it was the best thing I did, really. Because I should have been able to hold my head up high, whatever. But it was just a bit uncomfortable. Absolutely, yeah. I think it's about leaving behind a culture in many senses. And I think your perceptions, at least using myself as an example, and I'm not trying to transpose this on everybody, I think that people change over time and that that idea of time being a healer does actually help you to understand and process those physical places differently in in many ways. And it is at first getting away from the culture. When I was 18, I could not wait to get away. <laughs> Absolutely, you know, I could not get away fast enough. And I didn't then really understand what was driving me away. But I then had time to contemplate what had really driven me away so quickly and begin to understand things really weren't right. And that is in and of itself like that process of getting out, having new perspective being in a different place, feeling like you can belong in a different place, I think can be very, very healing and can help you get to know yourself in a very different way. In my own personal journey, it's about also accepting that the person that grew up in Yorkshire is part of me as well. I'm never going to be able to remove that part of me. And Yorkshire is a really beautiful, beautiful place. And I can still smell it. I can still see it. And when I write creatively, I write about it. And I'm there in my mind. But somehow there's something very, very difficult about being there in body. In the second episode of the series, we met Natasha, who, like Sarah, moved away from her hometown due to difficult family ties. You can hear her full story in episode two, but we chose to leave this moment out until now. We moved away from where we were living last year. So now I'm not even in the same general vicinity as my family. I remember I was in town and I saw my mum from a distance. I can't even describe the anxiety that I had. And it was awful. It was like sweaty palms, funny stomach. And that was just me seeing her, right? Like she didn't see me, we didn't interact or anything, but that level of anxiety was there. And all I can think is, Jesus, like imagine 
and that's just from the memory of things that's not even me talking to her face to face like imagine if you'd have bumped into each other much closer I, d- I don't know what I would have done to be honest I remember years ago so something something else had happened and I tried to leave and I was staying with someone and I bumped into her at the station that I'd come into because I kept trying to leave and then I kept coming back because I wanted to be a good daughter and do the right thing and um, I remember she just started having a proper go at me in the station and then she started saying things like oh well I'm gonna call your boss and tell him what a horrible person you are and they're not gonna want to employ you and everyone's gonna know that you're like a really terrible person and that you're horrible and all, all of this sort of thing and I just remember like logically I know that that wouldn't work but in the heat of the moment and then I actually remember at my job like talking to the security guard and being like could she do this and he was like no and I was like are you sure and he was like yes and um and yeah it's like it was this horrible fear and that's why I had to go that never got better it was always like that anything I did was just wrong yeah I mean that's obviously the risk of being physically in the place where your other family members may be and yeah it is I think it is a very anxiety provoking experience to do that I think that is why people do get away too and people do put physical distance as well as emotional distance between those people so I I didn't really want to be alienated from my grandma but because through my parents getting kind of responsibility for her when she was older then it meant that she couldn't see anybody but when I last went to see her it was two years before she died and we managed to arrange a secret visit with the home so my parents wouldn't know so the grandchildren went and things like that but my god I spent the entire time looking out of the window (laughs) being like are they gonna come (laughs) you know I was almost like watchdog I was just like where are they you know I was so 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 anxious and so even though, you know, it could be nice to go back and visit and visit some people that are very dear to me, I totally, totally empathise on a personal level with Natasha. My God, it is so, so, so difficult. I always knew that getting to university would be just so different. Actually, I remember it clear as day. So we were doing, you know, open days in your, second year, in your last year at school and you go and look at different unis. So I was going up University Avenue where the University of Glasgow is and there was the rainbow flag at the flagpole at the north front. I remember it being the first time in my life I had ever seen it. And I was like, yeah, I could live here. Like, if I get into here, then I know that I'll be fine. Because I always knew that university was my only way out. There was no other way I could leave that town. And that's Blair, who you'll meet in the next episode, number six. Blair's story, like Sarah, is centred around him escaping from an unhealthy mentality in a small town. I was still trapped in that house. I was still trapped in that town. And basically, university was the only way that I thought I was going to get out. It was the only way I could get out. So that was the only thing that kept me going all those years. But obviously, that has an effect on you when you're a child. Like, if I get into here, then I know that I'll be fine. Since getting to university, I've been able to get the support and have been a bit more manageable. So, for example, I'm from Yorkshire and I rarely go back to Yorkshire. I, I will go back once every two years. 
I've got friends who've moved to Yorkshire now and I've got a nice community of people and I've got people who I grew up with who are very dear to me, who, you know, I really want to see more. But it's very painful to go back there, very painful to visit and smell the smell and look at the landscape, to be reminded. I live far away from Yorkshire now and that is helpful on one level, but... I can't help but reflect on have I lost something about myself and a connection that perhaps is a shame. (laughs) But the byproduct of that, in my own personal circumstance at least, was that I felt very disconnected from my roots and I felt that I'd left behind and lost a lot of good relationships just to try and distance myself from something very difficult. I know that my son probably is hurting over this and that is probably my overriding concern now that if he you know he's wasting time we're only here once he's seen people in our family die and if something happened to me he's just going to end up hurting himself in time that's what I think it will eat it could eat him up I might be wrong he might be completely angry and arrogant and hate the sight of me I don't know I don't think so And I think he may even love me still because I am his mum. I've examined my own conscience and I've thought to myself, if the same situation happened again, how would you act? I would do the same thing again. So I have examined my conscience and thought, was it something I did? Could I have done something differently? I know that what I did, I would do again. But I suppose you beat yourself up a bit and think, There must have been something else, something I don't know about. But as I say, you know, unless someone sits down and talks to you or says, can we go to a mediator, have someone else there? I'm never going to know, am I? So you don't resolve anything by not talking. The stigma needs to go from it. It needs to come out in the open, doesn't it? Yeah. Even now I say I've got two sons. And if someone says, you know, well, do they both live at home? And I say, no, the youngest one lives at home. The oldest one doesn't. And I hope that they don't ask any more. I suppose I'm a bit embarrassed because I think it isn't a reflection on how I brought him up, although I probably didn't do it perfectly. No mother ever does. But I did what I needed to do and in the best way I could. If someone says, oh, they don't talk to you, or when did you, how sad. And I think that people probably think it's the way you behave towards that child. So I think people automatically, because as I said at the beginning, it goes against the natural order of things. It's not what happens, is it? It sounds like so, you've had reactions where people have said that. Only in my own family, actually, interestingly. And my mother, she's dead and gone now. And she was a good mother, brought up four children on her own. But she died in the November two years ago. And just before she died, she invited my son to Christmas and the rest of the family, but excluded me. So it didn't help any, really. I I said to her at the time, but why aren't you just inviting everyone? And she said, well, I can't invite you because he's not talking to you. And so that made me feel like it was my fault. My own family have said in the past, you know, the fight is between you two. It's not between us. And of course, it's not between them. And he's still part of the family. But he's often gone to family functions and quite happily ignored me. And I have not gone to a couple of family functions recently because I didn't want to see him particularly and be ignored. I was cross that he had the audacity to do that. It's difficult. It's not their argument, is it? They just, 
he's a family member, they don't agree with what he's doing, but life goes on and they don't want to get bogged down in the detail of it. And I suppose initially uh, what he did was unacceptable and I felt that they should be supporting me in that. But people live their lives. You know, people are basically selfish, get on with their own lives. They're not worried. And then also you mentioned these family occasions where it's bringing people together. Yeah. It's those trigger moments, isn't it, ultimately? Trigger moments. Yeah, those those occasions are always triggering moments. Because whether you are or are not invited to them, they present a quandary. They either present a loss of not being invited and a reminder of the loss, or they present a quandary of, I can't go, or I should go or I want to go but I don't feel I can and you have to manage a lot of feelings around the invitation. It must feel pressured as well there's an expectation that you either need to meet or to avoid and the consequences of that. Well it's about managing boundaries ultimately isn't it and I think those invitations and those occasions are a challenge to your boundaries and they're a challenge to how you feel, how you felt yesterday when you've got that invitation. So, as I said, you can feel very settled in in not having contact with someone and have good supportive mechanisms in place to help you in your life and be surrounded by other people and then find out something's happened that can set you right back there. And it, it means there is that sense of constant re-evaluation. In that sense, then... these moments are so triggering and those occasions whether you go to them or you don't go to them whether you're invited to them or you're not invited to them are just very very difficult I can see why people put a lot of physical distance in place to help with that and I think that's a tactic I've turned to in the past too is that the further away that I am the further away I feel And there is a sense of the physical distance reflecting my emotional distance, which can be really, really helpful or has been very, very helpful. To go to your own mother's funeral and have your son ignore you is pretty grim. He was hysterical because he loved his grandmother and he'd found her dead, which was horrible for him, I'm sure. And I remember the morning that I got the phone call saying she was dead and we all charged around there and he was sitting there and he was hysterical. And I I put my arm around him. It was just automatic. And we were estranged at that point. And I don't think he realised who it was. And then he looked at me and he said, get off of me. And I thought, my God, you're so angry still. And then at the funeral, as I say, he ignored me. And to do that to your own mother when she's burying her own mother is um, pretty grim. I have to. I just have to live each day as it comes and look after the people that do matter. And the other point in this is that my oldest son hasn't spoken to his younger brother for four years either. And that's another area. And and I think people, family members forget that. They just think, oh, well, they were jealous of each other. But actually, my younger son's got quite upset about it in the past. And he's got upset for me and also for himself. You know, he would have liked a big brother that was a big brother that he could look up to. So it has the ripple effect of estrangement is huge. And you said earlier that your older son had feelings of jealousy towards his younger brother. Well, there was six years between them. And to be honest, the older son, he had a lot more than the younger son always. But he just was, I don't know, just jealous. I think he wanted to be the alpha male in the family and 
and be in charge and felt that his younger brother wasn't always behaving as he should and he was taking it upon himself to correct him. And I mean, the, the day I had to ask him to leave, he actually attacked him and broke a window in the house. You know, it was unacceptable behaviour. He was trying to strangle him. It was getting serious. Both of my boys are six foot. And if you've got one of them attacking the other one, what are you supposed to do? It's almost GBH. And and that was happening in front of you, the strangling? Yep. yep. When you're panicked and you're really upset and angry, I thought, okay, I mean, I'm obviously shouting and had to stop it and actually said, get out. Before he went, I actually said to him, I thought, you know, get it together, Sarah. And I actually said to him, look, you know, you've behaved badly. That's unacceptable. It's not happening in this house. Shake his hand and say sorry. And he wouldn't. So off he went. And as I say, you know, I've examined my conscience and thought, would I do that again? Yes, I would. Yes, I would. Because it was unacceptable. And these family gatherings that you're talking about, Mm. it sounds like for for your family members to invite your son, but not you, that's adding to the rift. Exactly. Yeah, of course. Of course. But from their point of view, I don't think it's done with any malicious intent. I think they just wish it was resolved and they just think, oh, for goodness sake, we can't have them all in the same place. They're living their lives. I mean, if we both were to go and we were both talking, we'd both be invited. My mother, I remember saying to her, and it was eight days before she died, actually, which I, I have to deal with now. But I remember saying to her, you know, why can't you just invite everyone at Christmas? And then it's up to my son whether he goes or not. You know, you shouldn't exclude people. But, um, yeah, it, it's difficult. As I say, it's the ripple effect, isn't it? It always affects families. Absolutely. It's not just me and my son. It's me and his younger brother. It was me and my partner at the time. Me and my partner now. My partner now seeing me upset over it. And the wider family, yeah. So, yeah, it does have a ripple effect. But you have learned over time when to withdraw yourself and when, for your own sake, it's more important to to not reach out and to not go to things. Well, as I say, you know, having had cancer and having had a pretty rough two years with people dropping down dead. Yes. I mean, me and my younger brother are like, who's next? But um, I have to look after myself. Whereas I was eaten up with it, really upset, felt like I'd lost a son, but he was still living, walking and breathing. I now feel sorry for him. I now think you silly fool. Life is so short, and if something were to happen to me, how are you going to reconcile that with yourself? I feel sorry for him now. Hmm. It's stubbornness, it's pride, it's arrogance, and lack of maturity. And one day he'll be a father himself. But um, I've had to withdraw, and I know when to protect myself. But he knows where I am, and he needs to do some soul-searching himself, I guess, and I can't do that. I can't tell him to do that. He has to do that himself if he wants to. Or he has to live a life where he thinks, I cut my mother off and I never spoke to her again and deal with that. I can't answer for him. Yeah, I think that's quite common, actually. I mean, we we see it not just in real life, but we see it quite often depicted in in soaps as well and and in fiction drama. Who do I invite, this person or that person? It's, um, It's something really very common. It can be particularly difficult when there's actually a death in the family. 
then that feeling of the indissoluble family bonds really comes into play. That that, that is the moment that people feel as if everybody should come together and transcend the differences, but it doesn't always happen. And so you've got the bereavement coupled with personal hurt. Yeah, and the same at weddings as well, when you realise who has and who hasn't been invited and often see those events on Facebook or on social media. All those family occasions, the funerals, the weddings, the christenings, all the parties, the 40th, the 50th, the 21st, the graduations, they are the most challenging times because they're not only times where we expect family to work, but there are often times where family doesn't work and that can be very isolating and very, very difficult. At this wedding in France, my sister said to me, at least my son talks to me at one point. I mean, she'd had too much to drink and I just went outside to make sure she was okay. I said, are you okay? And she said, why are you fussing about me? At least my son talks to me. You know, so sometimes some real arrows to the heart without realising and also bothering to hear two sides of the story. They've obviously heard whatever he's told them, but no one's actually really bothered to ask me what happened. They may have heard it via my mother. She wasn't there. I remember saying to her once, you weren't there. You don't know what happened. I'm telling you what happened, but you actually weren't there. You didn't see how bad it was. And it was that not believing or respecting your decision or understanding that it was something you had to do. I felt that my mum hadn't supported me in it at all. So that did cause me and my mum some problems in, in sort of like, and I remember my counsellor saying it to me at the time, you felt that you wanted your mum to support you, to put her arms around you and say, I'm sorry, you know, and she didn't. But now, as I say, my mother's dead, my sister's dead, and the rest of the family just getting on with their life. And if they see my son, I think he was around at one of my nieces the other day, you know, they just all meet up. But they're allowed, he's, they're allowed to do that. It's not their argument, is it? He's still their cousin. Anyone who's suffering an estrangement, the first thing they're going to do, because there's such a stigma attached to it, they're not going to go out and broadcast it, are they, necessarily? You know, oh, my son's left home and hasn't spoken to me for six months because the reflection comes back on them. So that's the first port of call, I would think, that people will go to the internet and see, you know, is it just me or is this happening to other people? You know, is this is this something that's endemic in our society today or is it just me if I just done something terrible I think that that certainly for me that was what I you know I've got to find out about this was there part of you at that time that did think it might just be you well of course yeah of course you just think no one else would behave like this why would anyone else behave like this must I must just be an awful mother it must be me I must have called it wrong or even if I did the right thing why didn't he come back why didn't he try and come back and he didn't because the year before I he he behaved badly and I said you know I locked him out and he went and stayed with his grandmother for the night and the next day I came home from work he was lying on the sofa and I said oh hang on a minute I told you what are you doing back here and he said oh mum you know and I just you know I'm sorry but he didn't do it this time you see but to my credit I pulled it back and said okay shake his hand and say sorry and he wouldn't and I did that on purpose and I'm so glad I did that because had he done it had he said okay I'm sorry all right let's sit down I'm sorry we wouldn't be where we are now but he wouldn't and I maintain that and I do the same you know if my other son didn't me now behave like that I'd do the same thing I don't know if you're a parent Jay but parents always beat themselves up they always live with guilt 
And I have been like any other parent laid in bed at night once he start, passed his driving test thinking, you know, is he going to come home? I've been a loving mum. I may have got it wrong on occasion. I may have had the wrong choice of partner on occasion, but I always put my kids first. I'm quite a principled person as well. And when it comes to just unacceptable behaviour that's been brewing for maybe two or three years and then there's a flashpoint and something quite serious happens, no, I'm not going to tolerate that because I'm not going to be a doormat. I'm not going to be walked all over. And I do deserve a little bit of respect and I do deserve our home to be our home. And he crossed the line. I never in my wildest dreams thought four years down the line, my son wouldn't be talking to me. And I suppose maybe I was thinking it might teach him a lesson. Well, it hasn't. It's backfired. That's my only sorrow. I'm very settled and boring now. So (laughs) I've got to go and sweep a load of leaves up now. (laughs) (laughs) I hope that's helped anyway. If you can take some of it and it will help some of those Poor mums. I do completely, if I could give them all a big hug and say it would be all right, I would, because I do understand it is absolute heartbreak. It's totally upsetting. I I totally get that. But I've been there and gone through it and come out the other side. And I haven't got the resolution I wanted, but I've got the only resolution I can have, which is to look after me now. I can't do any more than that. So... So that would be my message to them. Look, look after you and look after the people that love you and need you. And the rest may or may not sort itself, but it's out of your control. Nice speaking to you anyway. I've got to go and sweep up some leaves. So, um, <laughs> all right, nice talking to you anyway, Jay. So um, if, I'm, if I can help in any other way, just get the guys to give me an, an email or a phone or whatever. Okay. Sarah, thank you so much indeed. All right, Jay. Take care. Bye. Take care. Standalone is a really small charity and I started the charity seven years ago and have built it up to what it is now, which is supporting people in six different locations and also running a national campaign for students to get them more support and visibility in their higher education process. We've done a huge amount in such a small time. What we really need to ensure that we are around in the long term and that we can scale properly is more donations from people like you. If you support charities, you'll know that there are bigger charities that ask for donations all the time on TV, on billboards, on the tube, on the bus, and they have really huge campaigns. This is great, but as a small charity, we can't afford those kind of campaigns. So we're asking you, our committed listeners who are impacted by this issue, to support the charity. And if you can set up a monthly donation of just five or ten pounds, it makes a huge difference to what we can do for you. If you go to our Just Giving site, which is www.justgiving.com slash standalone, then you can make a donation, a one-off donation, and also set up a monthly donation if you're able to. Your funds go a really long way to help people with this niche issue, and it means a lot to me as a founder to see other people supporting the charity. A lot of people think that support should just be with them, but we really need everyone to contribute to make sure that this support can scale and grow and reach as many people as possible. Please do consider giving a monthly donation to Standalone or giving us a one-off donation on the Just Giving site. Thank you.
thank you for joining us for our first podcast episode of 2020. We'll be continuing this series throughout the coming few weeks with more episodes focused on our individual participants like Sarah. And as ever, if you have any thoughts about this episode or any of the others in the series, do get in touch with us via the Standalone UK Twitter. That's at Standalone UK. Any thoughts you have can help us with future recordings. In the next episode, we'll meet Blair, who's currently studying at university. At the age of 14, Blair came out as gay to his mother. She was religious in a very traditional sense and wasn't as warmly receptive as Blair had hoped for and persuaded him to hide his sexuality from the rest of the family. Blair's mental health deteriorated over the next few years until he was able to move away from the family home. Both my grandfathers were missionaries, one in Bangladesh, one in Korea. My aunt and uncle were missionaries in France. My other aunt and uncle ran a Christian radio station. Both my parents were church elders. So yeah, it was a, it was a family thing. <laughs> so I always had this, I was brought up in a culture where being gay was not an option. It's difficult because from the age of say 11 or 12 and the start of puberty and you're thinking, oh, this doesn't feel quite right. You do feel like there's something wrong with you. I imagine that that is the case for any queer child growing up. But even more so when you're sitting at a dinner table and they're making comments about you without them realising. So I always knew it wasn't going to go down well, but in a sort of a, a fit of 14-year-old optimism, was it? I mean, what's the worst that can happen? And then, you know, the worst happened. It was just one night when I was fairly sure, I, I'd always known that I was gay, but I'd only been able to like say it out loud to myself since, say, 13, 14. Um, it wasn't an easy time just to accept it within myself, never mind to ask anyone else for acceptance. If you are feeling lower than normal or need immediate support with your well-being, please call Samaritans for free on 116-123 or make an emergency appointment with your GP. Standalone UK are such a small charity and so they cannot give out individual advice if you want to talk about the podcast, head online and go to their Twitter page, at UK Standalone, to join in the discussion. Remember that Standalone has lots of advice on their website as part of their guides. The Standalone podcast was produced by me, Jay Sykes, for Becca Bland of Standalone UK.